NK News has launched a new app that makes staying updated on all things North Korea easier than ever. The app gives access to the latest articles so you'll never miss a breaking story. It's fast, convenient and designed with readers in mind. Our team is dedicated to bringing you the most accurate and insightful information about North Korea with content and analysis unavailable elsewhere. Don't delay. Download the NK News app from Apple's App Store or Google Play and stay connected with the latest North Korean news and analysis. The app also works with NK Pro subscriptions, offering full access to NK Pro content. And welcome to the NK News podcast. This episode or this pre-interview was recorded on Tuesday, the 5th of December, 2023. And joining me via Zoom, we have my colleague, Colin Zwerko. Colin, welcome back on the podcast. Hello, Jacko. Thank you. Uh, so tell us a couple of these stories that have been really uh, grabbing your interest this week. What's the, the first one that comes to mind? Uh, well, maybe we can we, we can talk about the most recent thing before we jump in maybe to the satellite story, because uh, we've been talking about the satellite so much. But sure. since yesterday, the last couple of days, there's this National Conference of Mothers going on in Pyongyang. And... Right. That's uh, two weeks after uh, Mother's Day, which was on the 16th of November in North Korea. They do it a bit different. Right. Yeah. And... Kim Jong-un has shown a pretty big priority on this because he's made a speech now two days in a row, and uh, he doesn't always do this for these kinds of conferences. Over the last five years, they've had a lot of conferences, and he doesn't always attend. Mm -hmm. He didn't even attend the, the, the last Mother's Conference in 2012. He just right. did, a, did a group photo with them afterwards. So the speeches are long. There's a lot of text in there, and he's basically being really open about the kind of stuff we hear about a lot in foreign media about North Korea. So he's saying, you got to get control of the kids, you got to get them off of foreign influence, you mm -hmm. got to fix their behavior, you got to send them to construction sites, you have to send them to the military, you have to mm. teach them difficult lessons so that they will be perfect socialists and work for him and under his orders without hesitation and uh, with pure obedience. This is right. explicit almost. Uh, I mean, some of that is explicit and some of it is just paraphrasing, but it's really quite stark to see this mm -hmm. laid out so openly. It does seem familiar, though, a little bit in that foreign observers back in the 1980s were reporting that mothers were expected to teach their children to be you know, good socialists and to, to follow the Juche ideology to the letter. So this is this just a a reinforcement or a reiteration, or is this something new? No, I think you're right. It's a mostly a reinforcement. And there's this kind of, it's a little hard to articulate, but a trend I've noticed by reading these conferences and these speeches mm. uh, over the last five years is Kim's kind of attitude or his kind of the, the, the overall way you can describe all these speeches is he's just begging people to just mm -hmm. follow the ideology, just reject everything else in the world and just follow his teachings. You know, it's very evangelical. And mm. yeah, you can look back over history and say some of this hasn't obviously worked and some of it has worked to keep their system in place and to keep people yeah. obedient. But yeah, you can you can say that this is uh, an indication that despite all of his efforts, the government's efforts, the crackdowns, 
foreign media and influence remains popular among young people. And I think that's to be expected. Yeah, and there's no new Did information. Does he specifically make mention of, uh, of foreign media or, or South Korean cultural products? He doesn't say South Korean. He just says mm -hmm. something like, what is it, Isekjogin Hyunsan, uh, or something like alien phenomena, or... Uh -huh. I mean, these are euphemisms that are clear. Yeah. We don't need we don't need to beat around the bush. We know that he's talking about mostly South Korean media, but yeah, he doesn't discuss like punishments. He doesn't say anything super uh, explosive, but mm -hmm. it is just a reminder of of the situation. Now, I I think uh, he also said something about North Korea having a low birth rate. Is that is that right? Right. Yeah. And I, this is a, a topic that I haven't done a whole lot of research on, but I, we have had some contributors write for us in the last year about this issue, about how North Korean media can harp on South Korea for their birth right. rate issue. And we know that here in South Korea has got one of the worst birth rates in the country. I think it's like consistently 0.7. Is that right? Yeah, it, it's definitely less than one child per woman at this stage, which is, you know, less than half of the replacement rate. So it's the lowest in uh, in the world, I believe. Yeah. And so experts say this is going to have pretty big consequences down the line in the next generations, oh, yeah. just on the economy and the way the country runs. Uh, and North Korea will criticize or call out South Korea for this and kind of use it as a they, they kind of say, we're better than you, South Korea, uh, but oh. they don't talk about their birth rate that much. At mm -hmm. least that's what it seems uh, from the, the contributors' pieces on our website in the last year. Right. But I'd have to go back and look at just how much North Korea mentions it, but probably not that much. Uh, so this could be, you know, I don't know. Kim Jong-un just comes out and says stuff sometimes, uh, even if it's not really part of the propaganda typically. So I don't know if they're really going to talk about this more in state media, but Kim does acknowledge mm -hmm. it. Okay. Wow. So that's the first national meeting of mothers in, in 11 years with Kim talking to the, uh, the, the assembled group on two days. Is the I know the meeting is going on over several days. Is it already finished or is it still going on today? Uh, yes, I believe it closed. I've been looking at it this morning and I, I believe they used the word that the, the ceremony or that the conference ended on, on Monday. Well, that is certainly significant to have Kim talk there, address the, the mother separately. Uh, interesting. I, I uh, read one of the stories on NK News about that, and there was a, a quote from another official. And just judging by the name, it looked like that other official was also a man. Did, I, I wonder if any senior women addressed these mothers, or if they were just being talked to by senior North Korean men. Yeah, the, the stage at the conference was the entire front row of about 20 people. There was only one woman on the on the front row of the stage, and then a lot of women, pretty much, I think, all women behind them on the stage. And then the crowd was basically all women. So obviously, it's it's no surprise. The system in North Korea is a Politburo and a leading group, you know, led by Kim Jong-un, who are all men. Yeah. And he frequently comes out and talks about how women should live, how women should act. Mm -hmm. It's a, pa a very patriarchal society. But in the meeting itself, in the in the conference, they had a bunch of women come on stage and uh, share their experiences. And they are, they're all pre-approved experiences. It's all about praising Kim and the party. And, you know, even on Mother's Day last month, mm -hmm. we see this every year. The state media reports start with praise of Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong-un, Kim Il-sung for what they have done for Mother's Day. That's the framing. Here's a uh, a question for you. Do you think that, would it be fair to say, broadly speaking, that North Korea is a more patriarchal culture than South Korea, or are they about the same? I don't think I'm qualified to 
to answer that. I mean, there is a it's a mix in North Korea. There's a lot of promotion of e, of gender equality in terms of I guess basically working for the nation. Mm. But right, they're North very... Korea was very quick to pass a gender equality law way back, even even I think if I'm not mistaken, before the establishment of the DPRK as a state in 1948. It was one of the first laws passed. Yeah, uh, I don't know about that, but it sounds right. And yeah, they don't pretend that, or they don't say that men and women should do all of the same exact duties. They're very open mm -hmm. about delineating the different duties, but they do promote a different kind of equality, if that makes sense. Right. You know, right. women are have to do military service in North Korea, and they don't in South Korea. There's a difference for you, but I don't know what much else I can contribute. Okay. All right. That, it's a, a question I gave you without notice, so uh, fair enough. Certainly something interesting to look at uh, for uh, for academics out there. All right. So what about the other big story that we've been talking about a lot lately, which is the uh, the satellites? What news of the imagery from the satellites? Yes. So state media announced over the weekend that the satellite did start its quote-unquote mission on December mm -hmm. 2nd. State media still has not released any example imagery. They've not claimed that any images that appeared in state media are from the satellite. But we did notice that last week, Kim Jong-un went to the Air Force headquarters. That was one thing he did. Hmm. I guess that's a separate topic. But yeah, he's promising some kind of Air Force revival. But anyway, at the Air Force headquarters, he was pictured in images looking at maps of South Korea and a couple of satellite images. And hmm. so... Obviously, the first thing that comes to mind is, are these are these the first glimpse of uh, the satellite right. images taken from the new Maligong-1 satellite? Mm. And there was no answer to that question oh. yet, but we did find that one image that Kim Jong-un was looking at was not from the, sa the new satellite. So there's a very talented researcher and geolocator named Decker Eveleth, and I think he must have just been familiar with this site, but he noticed... And he posted that one of the satellite images Kim Jong-un was looking at was of a THAAD site in Southeast South Korea. That's a U.S., mm. you know, missile right, defense uh, base. Yeah. Terminal high altitude aerial defense. Right. It's the one on the Latte Golf Course. Um, ah, that one. Yep. In Songju, yeah. I think. So I, I guess that Decker maybe had looked at this many times before, and maybe he just recognized it immediately, or maybe anyway, it was very impressive. And so mm. when you look at that missile base... And when you skew the image and, and line it up to compare it to the one in the image of Kim Jong-un, yeah. uh, we noticed that basically a building looks different in the Kim Jong-un image in a way that mm. the roof of the building only matches satellite imagery from up until 2018. So they were mm. looking at a 2018 or before image for some reason. Now, this doesn't Ooh. mean we just posted about this a couple of days ago on our website. It doesn't mean that the satellite's not working. There are a few things mm -hmm. that could have happened. Maybe maybe the Air Force didn't have access to the imagery yet. Maybe there's, mm. you know, maybe it was still during the review period where it was going direct to Kim Jong-un. That could be one thing or maybe some other type of subterfuge. So I don't know. Very interesting. Okay, so basically, I think to bring it down to the bottom line here is we don't yet know what kind of imagery, if any, is coming out of the Maligyong-1 satellite. Right. And some experts think, you know, North Korea is not going to come out and show us examples because when, yeah. when any other nation launches a, a spy satellite, they don't come out and release the imagery. North Korea yeah, can accomplish a lot. Yeah, that seems like a, a fair lot. precedent to follow. Yeah, <laughs> they can just kind of use it to their advantage and not worry about yeah, maybe Kim Yo-jong will complain some more about what other countries say about criticizing it. But other than that, I think 
if it works, then they should just be fine mm -hmm. to use it. Yeah. Um, if it doesn't, then they'll launch some more. In the meantime, South Korea has put up its own uh, reconnaissance satellite through uh, SpaceX, right? Correct. Yeah, a couple of days North ago. North Korea uh, made a complaint there, either in the media or the UN Security Council, I'm not sure which, complaining that uh, there's a double standard that South Korea uh, should be criticized in the same way that North Korea was and bit of a, an argument back and forth. And the Americans said, well, no, because South Korea isn't under United Nations Security Council sanctions that forbid it from putting rockets up. So it seems a bit a bit petty to go for that point. But anyway, uh, they tried it. Yeah. You mean the which side? North Korea? Yeah, I think North Korea. I mean, it, it's obvious that, that they're not. the and, and of course, South Korea didn't send up the rocket itself. It used a uh, commercial agency in another country. So I don't really mm -hmm. see how North Korea can can try to make that point land. Their point is always from the standpoint of the the sanctions are illegitimate. So if you look at the world just on a pure just a pure comparison, why should one country receive so many complaints and criticisms and accusations of basically bad deeds, morally mm -hmm. and you know objectively bad deeds whenever another country right next door does the same thing and receives praise from other countries. That's North Korea's stance and I think the US mm -hmm. the US usually just points to the sanctions, calls it a day, but you know, maybe it's a messaging issue because obviously the sanctions were the P5 and other countries coming together to declare that North Korea doesn't deserve to be treated like other countries. That's kind of the basis of the sanctions. So the US just points to that and I don't know, the yeah, the argument gets lost, but North Korea had put a satellite up using a, a Russian or Chinese commercial agency rather than using its own rocket. Presumably, I'm guessing here, that that would, would not have necessarily been a breach of sanctions. I mean, the sanctions are about the rocketry and the missiles, not the satellite. Yeah, I think we've asked some some sanctions experts on that too, uh, whether or not it, the letter of the, not law, but you know whatever <laughs> sanctions are, um, uh, whether or not resolution. that stipulates... Yeah. It's just my opinion, but it's a matter of enforcement. If they're going to do it, they're going to do it. And no one's going to be able to stop it, except the U.S. could try to threaten secondary sanctions against a Russian company. And, you know, Russia will deny that it violates sanctions. And at the end of the day, what changes? Changes, yeah. All right. Well, thank you for bringing us up to date on some of the latest stories there, Colin. And uh, I hope you and the listeners will stick around because after the break, I have my second part of my interview with uh, Sid Seiler about uh, intelligence in North Korea. All right. Thanks, Chago. Ever been sidelined when it comes to understanding South Korea at an important meeting, conference or discussion? You won't be if you become a member of Korea Pro, your one-stop solution to staying updated with the latest in South Korea's politics, society, economy and foreign relations. Picture this, every morning you wake up to a newsletter that gives you a full aggregation of all the top news and analysis. It's handcrafted by the producers of NK Pro and NK News, so you can trust it to save you time and keep you ahead of the news cycle. In addition, the Korea Pro Week Ahead newsletter flags upcoming conferences, events and major diplomatic and business developments. And of course, there's in-depth specialist analysis to keep you informed on the top issues of the day which you won't find anywhere else. Korea Pro is produced by a wide range of specialists, including in-house analysts and external contributors. There are no ads or sponsored articles on Korea Pro. Unlike some of its South Korean competitors, Korea Pro provides hard-hitting and objective analysis without hidden agendas. For my listeners today, I've got something special. Use the coupon code PODCAST when you subscribe 
and get a 25% discount. Just head to careerpro.org slash podcast. Use the coupon code podcast when you subscribe and get a 25% discount. Just head to careerpro.org slash podcast. That's careerpro.org slash podcast. Make the smart choice. Choose Career Pro. For our longer interview today, uh, joining me via Zoom for the second time in the east of the United States is Mr. Sidney Seiler, now retired, but with over 42 years working in the U.S. government on Korean Peninsula issues as a senior policymaker, senior negotiator, senior executive manager, and intelligence officer in almost every possible U.S. military and civilian intelligence agency. You can find him on Twitter at Sid Seiler, S-Y-D-S-E-I-L-E-R. And if you haven't yet heard the first part of the interview, I encourage you to go back and listen to episode 306. Welcome back on the show, Sid. Well, thank you so very much for the invitation. I look forward to a, a robust discussion today. A lot of things going on, and I know you uh, always yeah. ask some probing questions. At the end of my last interview with you, Sid, I encouraged listeners to send in some questions of their own that I might not have thought of. And so I got a few emailed into me. So I'll start with those listener questions first before going on with my own. Wonderful. And the first one is a nice curly uh, morality or ethics question. And that mm -hmm. is, to what extent does the U.S. history of serious human rights abuses in Korea before and during the Korean War influence North Korea's negotiating position vis-a-vis -vis the United States today? More specifically, would an official apology for these human rights abuses, for example, uh, the massacre at Norgun Ri, support for mass roundups and executions of suspected leftists, etc., help potentially unlock the endless cycle of negotiations that you described during your first interview? Well, I would say, you know, I'm not an expert on all those events, although I did obviously, you know, have my my share of Korean history study classes and, and looked at that war period well. And I know it's a very controversial period mm. and there were a lot of atrocities on both sides. And one thing I do know is that from from North Korea's perspective, and you always hear them in particular emphasizing U.S. atrocities, alleged alleged atrocities at Shincheon and, of course, the carpet bombing. The way North Korea looks at these issues is just so fundamentally different from us that we are going to inevitably talk past each other, I think, on a lot of human rights issues. That's the, the downside. The upside is I don't see it as a real, as either an obstacle towards gaining trust with North Korea. The, the causes of distrust between the two countries is not attributable to you know historical events like those in the past. Those are regrettable parts of history. But I don't think they would necessarily have much value in terms of trying to achieve some diplomatic breakthrough with the North. And a follow-up from me, uh, what, if anything, do you believe would help to unlock the endless cycle of negotiations and crisis creation? Well, this is a great question. And I, I, you know, my instincts are to say that you know, North Korea actually desires that cycle. If you look at the history of our engagements and you know, kind of in the big block, years of the agreed framework negotiations, the the six-party talks under the Bush administration, the Obama era, Leap Day Understanding, and, and our engagements under the Trump administration in Singapore and Hanoi, time after time again, North Korea walking away from some pretty lucrative opportunities 
that even as I was involved in them, uh, you know, thinking to myself, the lifeline we would be throwing to the system, the delay of, of uh, reunification this this would would bring about. But all these opportunities that North Korea had to kind of break this negative cycle with the United States, they have walked away from. And and so you know when you you construct an understanding of North Korea that assumes that a perpetual sense of tension or animosity with the United States is actually somewhat ontologically necessary for North Korea. It doesn't bode well uh, for any type of breakthrough. This is a you know a zero sum game between the North and South that goes back to the division of the peninsula. And you know it is not in North Korea's efforts to embark on a path that actually could be more regime threatening because all the baggage that an improved relationship with the United States would eventually bring, not just denuclearization, but all the other things that come from having a relationship with the United States. My sense is right now, you know, North Korea just simply, it's tactically singing, uh, signaling a total lack of interest in dialogue with us. It's a position that's been staked out since the beginning of 2019. It's somewhat complicated by COVID, I understand. But, you know, if we if we look at ourselves five years down the road without having made any meaningful contact with North Korea, I would not be surprised. Do you think here's another listener question, but it, it fits in nicely uh, with with where we are. Do you think that at the Moon Jae-in Kim Jong-un summit in Pyongyang in September 2018, that President Moon convinced Kim Jong-un that Donald Trump would agree to significant concessions at their Hanoi summit in February 2019? And this may have led Kim Jong-un to confidently approach that meeting expecting to win. And when that didn't happen, he was massively disappointed. Does that sound about accurate to you? I Yeah, it's very accurate. And this was, of course, the challenge that the, the Moon administration faced in seeking to play a, a mediator role. And when you're in this mediator role trying to bring two you know, diametrically opposed parties together, you're going to be fast and loose with a description of what the other side is ready to concede or what they might bring to the table. And I really do believe that at the end of the day, Kim went to Hanoi for all mm -hmm. intents and purposes, because they, they went in with such confidence. That confidence was visible in the propaganda, the media messaging as, as you know, Kim Jong-un got on the train and went down to Hanoi. And it is clear that he, he thought he was going to get uh, an acceptance from uh, Donald Trump on all of his demands. And that in some way, that those those are part of the messages that he was getting from the Republic of Korea, officials, media, and also even even Western media's portrayal of you know President Trump being either mm -hmm. desperate or easy to be duped by North Korea. And so Kim Jong Un probably went in with a degree of confidence that he could you know sell the same horse one more time, very limited denuclearization package in exchange for some pretty significant sanctions lifting. And when it came down to, no, we can't take that, but let's talk about what we can, we could negotiate. Kim Jong-un just simply wasn't prepared. Mm. Do you also think that Kim's embarrassment from Hanoi led him to ignore Moon Jae-in for the rest of his presidency, including Moon's exclusion from the Trump-Kim Jong-un meeting in Panmunjom on June 30th, 2019? Well, in looking over the history of the comprehensive military agreement with the latest developments, you know, I went back mm. and kind of looked at what that timeline from late 2018 to 2019 looked like. And by the end of 2018, we were already seeing Kim losing interest in some of the inner Korea momentum that 
appeared to have been underway, beginning with the Pyeongchang Olympics, Kim Il-jong coming down, and of course the the summits and and all the the your your classic, not unprecedented, not historic, because it was not the first time we'd seen this. Uh, mm-hmm. 91 to 92 high level talks, you know, Kim Dae-jung, Kim Jong-il summit. You know, we've seen a lot of this before, but by 2018, he was already losing interest. I think Hanoi even before Hanoi. I, I think so. I, you know, and, and just in terms of the the difficulties that the uh, Republic of Korea was in, in encountering in implementing mm-hmm. parts of the uh, you know, moving beyond the initial stage of what was in the comprehensive military agreement. There was just no no more forward movement, and you could see that again. You know, but what my particularly progressive South Korean observers like to note is that yeah. the problem is, you know, Kim at the end of the day wants relations with the United States, and the only reason he ever gives any attention to South Korea is if Seoul is the door to Washington, and therefore after Hanoi fell apart, then definitely they weren't going to have any interest in in doing anything with South Korea. I actually would th- would say that diminishment of interest actually had already begun by last lack uh, by the end of 2018. I'm getting ahead of myself in in terms of order of my question, but since you've just mentioned it, I'll bring it in now. Do you believe that North Korea actually wants normalized relations with the United States? I think there is a set of normalized relations that you know they would envision as being a worthwhile diplomatic goal to pursue, and that would be the United States. And this is not. You know, I'm not creating a straw man just to shoot it down, but this is the United States that would have come to accept North Korea as a nuclear weapon state, something they thought they actually had achieved at Singapore, by the way, that mm-hmm. by sitting down leader yeah. to leader, it was an acknowledgement of the North's nuclear weapon status. And a, a United States that in the process of sitting down and negotiating with North Korea would be putting on the table, you know, reduction and elimita- elimination of military exercises reduction and elimination of extended deterrence, protection to the ROK, and eventual reduction and removal of the ROK, all of which leading to a U.S. ROK, you know, an you know, abrogation of the U.S. ROK security alliance, which, which the North would assess would be no longer necessary. And so that North Korea, in its nuclear weapon status, would have this relationship with the United States which would give them the upper hand over the ROK. I, you know, that would be the type of relationship that Pyongyang would desire. I don't think Pyongyang, it's hard to believe that Pyongyang is either developed, because for many years, right, what did what did we hear during the six-party talks years from apologists or sympathizers, not sympathizers, apologists for North Korea who would say, listen, Kim Jong-il is not interested in nuclear weapons. He's merely developing these capabilities at a, as a negotiating card. And, you know, once he can sit down with the United States, he will easily negotiate these, these away. Well, mm. you know, I think we're, we're far beyond believing that anymore. But as, as recently as a year or two ago, I remember hearing from experts what North Korea is really hoping to do is finally lock in the, this well-established ICBM capability. Then they can sit down and negotiate with the United States as an equal. Yeah. And, and again, you know, I just don't see that in, in, the, in the cards. Another related question, what are Pyongyang's real feelings about the stationing of U.S. troops on the Korean Peninsula? We've heard it said a few times over the years that when speaking off the record, and frankly, North Korea's leadership said it was okay with U.S. troops remaining here, even after a a peace deal. 
I know. And, and those similar to the statement, you know, we don't trust the Chinese and what we want is, you know, right. a relationship with the United States to, to put a check on to counter mm. China. We hear that thrown out every once in a while. It falls on a receptive ear. And then that that is perpetuated. The the interesting thing about U.S. forces Korea is if, if you take the regime construct of North Korea as one that thrives on a state of conflict, and hostility with the outside world that justifies their authoritarian system internally because of external security threats, real, imagined, concocted, et cetera, then one would say that the presence of U.S. forces in South Korea is necessary for North Korea's legitimacy narrative. Mm -hmm. uh, and On the other hand, I do think that what the North Koreans hope to accomplish one day is a, a breaking, a severing of the U.S. ROK relationship that you know allows the North Koreans to sit across from the South from a dominant position without the obstacles of U.S. forces Korea, U.S. influence on the inter-Korean process, all those standard complaints that we heard about in 2018. The, the ROK is a puppet of the U.S. The ROK doesn't do anything in North Korea without Washington's approval. The ROK is involved in exercises and extended deterrence that brings you know, the clouds of nuclear war to the peninsula. And the only way towards towards true peace on the peninsula is when the two Koreas can work this out among each other. I think that is a, a goal that is, it goes beyond mere propaganda that they would want the U.S. forces off the peninsula. But I do understand the logic of those who would say, you know, that the U.S. is helpful to Pyongyang. The U.S. stationing of U.S. forces in South Korea has diplomatic benefits to Pyongyang. I understand the logic of that argument, but I, I don't think at the end of the day, they would openly acknowledge that and openly propagate it and abandon, I believe, their goal to one day redefine the, the balance of power on the Korean Peninsula with the U.S. off the peninsula, the U U.S. nuclear umbrella removed and an ability to, to dominate the future of the, of the Korean Peninsula. As an American and a former uh, government uh, employee, do you see that as a realistic goal that North Korea could somehow crack open the U.S.-Korea military alliance, uh, particularly under somebody like a President Trump in the White House? Is that realistic? It's realistic enough that we need to be careful and attentive about that. And, you know, if, if recently I'm asked a lot about, for example, the ROK's possible pursuit of nuclear weapons, and I remind people that ROK pursuit of nuclear weapons will likely take place within some type of context of a critical lack of confidence in the U.S. Uh, deterrent and the U.S. You know, security assurances to the Republic of Korea. And North Korea would see that as an opportunity to drive a wedge in the, in the U.S. ROK relationship and perhaps preempt South Korea's securing of nuclear weapons by attacking first. Because that wouldn't be an overnight process to secure nuclear weapons, right? That would take, right. I don't know, months or something. That's right, and it would it would get it would likely be made public before they had a sufficient arsenal to to right. meaningfully on their own deter a North Korea attack. My own sense is, you know, I remember all the transitions of power going back, frankly, to the 1980s, and at each each side, whether it's a sole transition, and we're talking about the impact of of the shift from a conservative to a progressive. Uh, government, or if you look at the United States, and uh, you know, I mean, there were shocks during the Trump era, there were shocks during the Carter era, mm -hmm. 
but the alliance has shown a remarkable sense of resilience because of the natural shared interest between our two countries. But again, you can never take this for granted, all the elements of reassurance that are involved in, in a really solid nuclear deterrence, nuclear reassurance strategy. They're never satisfied. It's a, it's a constant homework assignment. And so we have to continue to demonstrate the closeness of the relationships, the commitment of the United States, the Republic of Korea, and the Republic of Korea's trust in the United States. Let's uh, talk a bit about your meetings and, and discussions with, uh, with North Korean officials. You previously stated that your DPRK interlocutors were professional and their positions and messages maintained consistency over time. The U.S. government's position on denuclearization can probably also be said to remain consistent over the years, regardless of the administration. Do you think this policy of consistency in position has caused the U.S.-North Korea dialogue to devolve into a situation of, and I'm going to repeat the phrase that you used earlier, talking past each other, that is stating and restating the same positions and thus hindering any possibility of negotiations leading to a win-win situation for both sides. You know, that's a variant on the, the question, why don't we just give up on the on CVID and on complete verifiable irreversible uh, denuclearization and give up on the perfect and pursue the good, which would be arms control. And if you look at the way, in particular, the six-party talks and the, the leap day understanding and the framework of the Trump administration's approach to North Korea, all of these were very, very flexible approaches, which began with modest confidence-building measures necessary to establish some, some degree of credibility of the negotiation, right, that, you know, it would be hard to imagine credible denuclearization talks underway as North Korea is conducting nuclear tests, launching missiles, uh, long-range missiles, or even, you know, reprocessing plutonium, uh, operating a uranium enrichment facility. And, and this is why, if you, in particular, you look at the way the, uh, the six-party talks was structured and, and the, particularly the action agreements that put the September 19, 2005 joint statement into uh, implementation phase. And if you look at the leap day understanding, and if you look at what the Trump administration was seeking to establish to try to move forward at Hanoi, this is all based upon, you know, a principle of you have nuclear weapons. We understand that. We know that. You say we have a hostile policy. We disagree. You disagree. Let's move down the path of good. Let's have as a goal, a denuclearized Korean peninsula. And the path to that starts with reciprocal action for action, confidence building like measures that would take us down that path. So there's always been the flexibility built in. It wasn't like CVID is this, and if we don't get this, we're not sitting and talking to you. That has never been the approach of the six party, at least of the post agreed framework era. We've never made the perfect, the demand on day one. And we've always had that flexibility. And, you know, I remember anytime, any place, all issues, we were thinking of making t-shirts, joking aside at one time, you know, because that was our consistent message. We are willing to meet at any time, at any place to cover all issues. And mm -hmm. there's just no meaningful discussion on the peninsula without the nuclear issue coming into play. Just for our listeners at home, uh, in case it, it went by them uh, or over their heads, CVID or CVID is the complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization of North Korea. I wonder if you could comment a little bit on the dialogue approaches of some of your DPRK locators like Kim Ge-gwan and, and Che Sun-hee. How much did their 
personalities influenced their dialogue approaches? They were all really well trained to engage the United States. And of course, now Chase Sun Hee is is foreign minister, so she's got global mm. roles and a lot of experience. Although she began as a as her career as a translator, I think, didn't she? Well, that's true. She played that role. You know, I, I think maybe we put, if you look at how we go into negotiations and the role of the translators and the role of negotiators and kind of that firewall we put up, your job is translator. We don't need you analyzing. Right. We don't need you negotiating. You're there to be the translator. I think there was always a little bit more than than translator for Madam Che. And, and so, but, you know, she was obviously a, a U.S. expert and was really well-versed, you know, and Kim Gae-gwan, the vegan, kind of all the, the generation of that of whom I negotiated with, and I remember the, the best from the, either the six-party days or elite day agreement, just consummate professionals who represented their their state's interests. And, and of course, that included being very forward-leaning and accommodating with us when the call was to you know, lead the Americans down some path that kind of gives them encouragement that some progress is possible here. And then when the time comes, you need to pull out the talking points where you you go through the history of U.S. hostile policy and tensions rise, blood pressure rise. So they can they can play all those roles at any time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's inter- as I tell people, and this is really important. And as we look back at the the symmetry of of 2018 and 2019, Wherever your view on symmetry is, often you know the claim is if you haven't worked out all the deals before the leaders sit down, there's very little hope that you know these types of details can be worked out at at the senior level. So the the a, the senior level summit is much less important than some people would think. At the same time, it does allow the leaders to to develop a relationship that's that subsequently is translated uh, into directions to negotiators. So you can negotiate meaningfully through the New York channel. You can negotiate meaningfully in a third country and you can, you know, negotiate meaningfully at at many levels. Everything was ratcheted up a notch or two during the Trump era, but it ended Mm -hmm. up not having any major deliverables of failure of our agreements and, you know, the greed framework, the leap day understanding, six party talks were not because we were talking to the wrong people. And if magically the right people were at the table, that mm. things went differently. I often hear the other one you hear is our delegations, the U.S. side usually has a lot of multi-agency participation. Mm. Yeah. Right. You got people from obviously state and the White House and from Department of Energy, Department of Defense, everybody who's involved in the nuclear issue. And you don't see KPA soldiers, uh, you know, on delegations. You're and you're never really going to get atomic energy sector officials. And, and again, that's not, you know, oh my goodness, this could have worked if only the right people had been at the table. The yeah. attendance of the level and the you know inclusion of particular organizations in these negotiations are always designed by Pyongyang for a purpose, right? And so. When you're not sitting across from a person who has any authority or on the one hand, none of them have authority on their own. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, they, they have absolute authority so that the points that you're getting from them are ones that have been approved at the highest levels. Are there any North Korean officials that you looked forward to talking to again at future meetings or others whose presence would make you groan inwardly? Actually, no. I think, I mean, I would love to see negotiations resume. I would actually, now that I'm no longer in government, you know, if North Korea started probing with some type of track two or track 1.5, it would yeah. be great to have them come out again 
and for us to share positions. I think it's always helpful to engage North Korea. There's there's no reason. We have never had a policy of not engaging North Korea. Often, yeah, when we go through these periods where protracted periods where there's no dialogue, you hear stories like what, like the the strategic patience accusation. That that was never our policy. We never used that term. I think one official may have used it one time to Mm -hmm. describe why we weren't rushing back to the table after the 2009 table don't launch a nuclear test. But we never had a policy inherently of not talking to North Korea. We always, the door is always open. And I think that has been particularly true, at least since we engaged in the six party talks process. Because you look at the engagements that we had with the North Koreans, I mean, there's some robust diplomacy, both within the six-party talks construct and outside of it, between 2002, October, Jim Kelly visit, all the way up to, you know, the the dwindling down of the meetings in 2008. And then the Obama administration picked up the ball and and tried, even after the 2012 Leap Day Agreement collapsed with the, with the table dome launch of uh, April 13th. Again, we tried to pick up the pieces and negotiate. And from that point onward, from 2013 onward, it was it became very difficult because the North Koreans just up until the post-2017 missile a month madness pivot to diplomacy in 2018, they just mm-hmm. had simply no interest in talking. So it's a frustrating period. So you know, as I look at various calls for the US to change its policy, to try a new approach, to sit down with the North Koreans. I kind of feel guilty that as from an analyst perspective, Pyongyang makes this all very easy for us. When I say North Korea doesn't want to talk, it's you've got to really show me the evidence. Pyongyang, frankly, just has not been willing to sit down and talk. And it's been frustrating, but it's not because of a either a decision made in Washington or pressure from Seoul under a, a conservative leadership not to engage in North. We just haven't seen anything like that. Here's a question about uh, language, which you've uh, you've made mention of. You've said in the previous podcast that having proficiency in the Korean language contributed to your success in your career. In your various meetings with DPRK interlocutors, did you respond directly or did you still go through an interpreter or translator? And part two of that is how important are interpreters and translators to the success of talks? Is it beneficial to allow your dialogue partner to speak and use the time while their interpreter is providing the translation to mentally formulate formulate your own response. Oh yeah, I, I can tell you very much so that you know the use of a translator is extremely helpful in giving mm. you that break to kind of formulate a meaningful response. And if you're ever in the unfortunate position of being a note taker, it's not an yeah. unfortunate position, but it's really hard work. You know, particularly if you're trying to get something like a verbatim uh, transcript of a meeting, obviously the translation break works. I, you know, the, you know, when you're in the official negotiations, it's diplomatic protocol, and in, in most instances, to mm-hmm. allow your counterpart to speak in their own language and and work through interpreters. Yeah, and it's you know what what's interesting too is, you know, interpreters may know the official talking points, and if the person sitting at the table kind of goes off those talking points, the interpreter can reintroduce the right ones. And then you've got the linguist in the in, in the backbenchers thinking, well, what is the, the effect? But that usually interpretation is not as much of a challenge as you think it is, because hmm. when it comes to important key points that are significant, both sides know the the need for precision and accuracy. 
and any remaining imprecision is intended. Right. Right. Now, so, of course, both sides have got interpreters. So, for our listeners, just help us to understand the logistics of it. So, let's say the the North Korean negotiating partner speaks, and then that person's North Korean interpreter interprets in New English, or does your interpreter do that? Who who, who does what? Well, that, that that's a good point. In, in situations, which is most situations where both sides come to the table with their interpreters, their interpreters are responsible for translating their sides, English from our, our interpreters do English, their interpreters do uh, Korean into the foreign language. So, you know, it is the job of the interpreter on the DPRK side to translate into English what their mm -hmm. lead negotiator is saying at the table. Okay. And, and vice versa. Does it ever happen that the interpreters amongst themselves have a disagreement about an interpretation? It's not so much of a, you know, a, a disagreement, but, you know, mm. a desire to kind of get clarity. What does this term exactly mean? I even think, I just off, the, this is, doesn't come from a negotiation, but with the way North Koreans uh, publicly characterize their intermediate range ballistic missile is a little bit different than the way the South Koreans describe that class of missiles. But those are all usually uh, challenges that you can uh, work your way through. If we go to 2012, right, what was the accusation of the Leap Day Agreement? Was that, well, the North Koreans didn't really think that a satellite launch, which is what was done on April 13th to mark the 100th anniversary of the birth of Kim Il-sung, mm. that a uh, satellite launch was was covered by the agreement. And it was clear, you know, as we you know, you would have to have a pretty low view of the competency of the U.S. delegation to not think that we uh, made it clear at, at that table that long-range ballistic missile launches. You know, this is what the, this is what we mean by that. And then the other one that's always debated is, of course, the October two thousand and two visit of Assistant Secretary James Kelly right. to uh, Pyongyang, right? And and the question about whether there was actually the North admitted to having uranium enrichment program or not. And for me, yeah, there was some de de deliberate ambiguity looking at the official records that people have published in their memoirs and books. And, you know, the members of that delegation that I spoke to, I was not on that one. Truth of the matter is, Jim Kelly put in front of North Korea evidence they have a nuclear weapons program, whether, you know, I can't remember, was it Kang Suk Chu or Kim Gaewon, the interlocutor that evening and the next day, who, who appeared to be admitting it probably use language, which is often used by North Koreans. Yes, we have the right to have that and more. Mm -hmm. right. Does that mean you have it or not? Right. And the truth of the matter, if North Korea wanted to try to salvage the Reed framework, uh, there was plenty of time after the visit of Jim Kelly to Pyongyang for the, the North to have picked that up. Instead, what we saw was a breakout, I think, would have come whether there were hanging chads in Florida or not, and the election mm. went to President Bush or to then Vice President Al Gore, that the North was looking, you know, to that we would have had to engage on the uranium enrichment, and eventually the uranium enrichment would have brought the agreed framework to a dead halt. Mm -hmm. The result, of course, is rather than what you might have expected to be a, a sustained U.S. DPRK interaction, uh, denuclearization, negotiating path, what you have is then the move to the multilateral format, right? And in part, I mean, it was a it was a smart move on the Bush administration's part because it got the other involved parties, particularly China, 
yeah. and to some degree Russia, and obviously South Korea as a potential provider of aid and assistance to North Korea, Japan, a regional partner involved in the nuclear issue, and who also through DPRK Japan normalization would bring a lot of benefits to North Korea. So the sixth part, the the de uh, bilateralization mm -hmm. of the process made a lot of sense. A, a related question on uh, on translation, but away from the negotiating table. How important is it in gathering and understanding intelligence on North Korea to have Korean language proficiency? And follow up, is Korean language fluency high and common within the United States intelligence community generally? Well, Korean is a difficult language, that is certain. And, you know, we do have, obviously, across all the disciplines, a large number of speakers, some of them native speakers, mm -hmm. some of them have gone through Defense Language Institute, other through U.S. academic institutions. And of course, today it's so different. I learned Korean in, in 20, in 19, uh, holy cow, 1981. There was mm -hmm. no internet. There was no K-pop. There were no K-dramas. I, I, I remember the first time I saw anything in Korean other than my textbook was, you know, going up to San Francisco to get a Korean restaurant and seeing Korean newspapers. Today, there's a lot more people, with a lot of interest in Korea who are learning the language, who are, who are interested in the culture. Uh, and that certainly enhances our overall understanding of, of North Korea, of this issue across the community and, and certainly even in government. And so that's a very, a very good trend. Of course, language and cultural understanding is crucial to understanding North Korea. Uh, you know, the, as we look at North Korea and we, we deal with the, the epistemological, the epistemology of the challenge, what, what are, what are our assessments based on? How do we know what we know? How do we know what we don't know? To use more Dan, uh, Don Rumsfeldian language, what are the known mm -hmm. unknowns? A big part of that is understanding these cultural and, of course, by extension, these uh, language intricacies of the issue. And it does. It's also an, it's also an issue where, as somebody who's worked on it for forty two years, and I don't want to make the the bar so high that nobody can hope to aspire to be a, yeah. an expert on North Korea unless they've been doing it for twenty or thirty years. But that time on target is important to understand mm -hmm. the unique nature of the North Korean system and, and how that impacts U.S. foreign policy and national security interests. Coming back to the negotiating table, the DPRK uses a variety of tactics to control or disrupt meetings, such as arriving late or interrupting the host at the outset to say, I have a statement to read out or uh, changing the agenda, changing the subject. Have you experienced these sorts of activities during meetings? And, and if so, how, how do you react? How do you respond to them? Yes, yes, indeed, I have. And, you know, the United States, I think we've gathered enough experience in this over time. It's, it's not as problematic. It was frustrating at first. And I, I've been in the room where I was not the lead, obviously, in many negotiations, but uh, where the lead negotiator, lead negotiator was somewhat thrown off by that somewhat mm -hmm. frustrated by that. But the more experienced diplomats have seen this. I, mean, I don't think North Korea is unique in this type of belligerent kind of behavior, This these negotiating games. And it's just something that you you sit down and you wait for, and, and, it, and it ends. And you know, in particular, there's some grandstanding toward the end of the negotiation where suddenly a whole new set of demands are put on the table. They're trying to get every last piece of lint out of your pocket. And that's, you know, kind of the negotiating style. But it's one that you just learn to tolerate and work around. The uh, the June 2018 Kim Trump summit in Singapore 
Kim Jong-un agreed to the return of U.S.-Korean war remains, the Korean People's Army transferred 55 boxes of remains to a team from the U.S. Joint POW-MIA Accounting Command at Kalma Airport in Wonsan on uh, July 27, 2018, shortly after the summit. The U.S. Is, is very much committed to the return of the remains of uh, the soldiers who died in the war. Do you think that some sort of agreement can be reached in the future to resume this program with North Korea? And, and do you see it as an important uh, ongoing issue? I, I do. And I feel for the, uh, the families of, of these uh, missing persons that have not been accounted for. And, you know, the remains issue was a big issue when I was at the uh, White House and National Security Council. It was part of the negotiations that, that had been terminated uh, prior to, I think, with the advent of the Obama administration. It was not a decision by the U.S. It was a decision during the Bush administration. There's no dodging the fact that this is an important humanitarian issue. North Korea sees it as a political issue, mm -hmm. and they use it as such. And, you know, we should always urge the North to uh, return these remains I, I think, again, this is an area where it, it's kind of like separated family reunions or humanitarian assistance, where you hear voices calling on the U.S. to change its policy, and, and there just simply will be no remains recovery operations possible until North Korea decides it wants to do so. They know we want it. They know there's benefits to it, that we can be good partners on doing it. We know how to do it. Mm -hmm. We've got past experiences doing it. So it's not like we're getting into a new area where we'd have to start from scratch. We've got, you know, teams with experience and data, you know, ready to pursue this. And it's just North Korea that, you know, uses it when it sees it as diplomatically, tactically valuable diplomatically. And that's an unfortunate reality of this issue. Have you made any visits to the DPRK yourself? And if so, in what capacity? Yeah, I, you know, so, I mean, I, w I was on the Albright delegation visit. And, and that was my uh, first time into North Korea. It was a fascinating time. It was interesting because, you know, you had this diplomatic play that really started about a year earlier with the uh, Bill Perry visit. Mm. I actually, when I look at the timeline of, of that year of 2000, again, I just think they were getting ready for a breakout under the Bush administration or under the follow-on administration. Mm -hmm. And so it was a, a great effort by Madeleine Albright and her team to, to try to probe, to try to push ahead, to take the momentum of the Kim Jong-il, Kim Dae-jung summit, the visit to Washington of Cho Myung-nok right after that, then the, the head of the General Political Bureau of the yeah. KPA, seen largely as the number two man in North Korea at the time. We had missile talks there saw Bob Einhorn at an event the other day, and Bob and I were, we worked a little bit together while we were out on that. And so it was good to get that first experience on the ground to see how North Korea handles a senior U.S. delegation visit and to see what possibilities there were for advancing diplomacy. It was, of course, we heard the, the the common, the phrases we hear over and over over the years, boy, once the presidents meet, all mm -hmm. of this can be solved. Right. Or we really want a better relationship with the United States because we don't trust China. Did people say that to you at the time on that visit? Yes, you hear that. And so you hear that both by Kim Jong-il sitting at the table across from Madeleine, Madeleine Albright. And, and then you hear some of their interlocutors say, you know, what we really want is a relationship with the United States. We don't like yeah. China. We trust them. 
etc. Were you at the table with Kim Jong-il? I was not. I was very junior at the time, but uh, I got into a few of the events. And of course, the somewhat controversial May 1st stadium event with the uh, tribute to the 55th anniversary of the Korean Workers' Party. It was the mm-hmm. uh, mass gymnastics games before the Arirang set came right. out a few years later. But I got to participate in that. So being able to see these mass games firsthand it was interesting. I was talking to some friends the other day, and we were trying to figure out what the largest stadiums in the world were. Because I actually, mm. small thing, story aside, I played in the marching band at the University of Michigan, and we had mm. about 105,000 or so in that stadium. It's a huge stadium. But then yeah. if you Google largest stadium, the May 1st stadium comes up with right. 150,000 or so. So I, and, I, and for a while there, uh, the, the largest crowd ever assembled was reported to be for the uh, the, the pro wrestling event in 95 with, uh, with right. Eric Bischoff, right? the collision in Korea. 150,000, I think, was reported. Good memory. And, and just the whole logistics of how that was, you know, it was inaudible. And so you go in to Pyongyang often without a schedule or with a vague schedule so mm. that every high-level meeting is seen as some gracious uh, concession on uh-huh. North Korea's part that you should reciprocate by by being lifting your demands or providing some type of incentive. So Madeleine Albright went on the ground with a very loosely defined schedule. Certainly it, it became a set of meetings between her and, and Kim Jong-il. And then of course you had that event. And so that that was a just a very meaningful trip for me. And it it allowed me to kind of have, at that point in my career, having looked at North Korea from afar yeah. for you know, nearly 20, 20 years, years. a good opportunity to go in and, and validate yeah. some of my thoughts, impressions, mm-hmm. maybe even biases, and, and then, you know, run them up against the reality on the ground, understanding that Pyongyang is not North Korea, but in ways it is. I did, I've not been through the countryside, and I, I respect those who do, but you learn a lot by going into Pyongyang as well. I'm going to pause there and say that I've just gotten through the uh, the listener questions. <laughs> so I'm now going to get into my own questions. So I'm going to have to All ask right. you to be as, as brief as you can on the following ones. They're okay. divided into a couple of sets, and we'll have about 30 minutes left. It's going to be a fantastic interview. People will love it, I'm sure. They really enjoy The feedback on the first one was great. So uh, we really That's appreciate you coming back for the second one. Okay, so my next uh, set of questions are all about uh, classified intelligence. How much can we know and understand about North Korea from open source versus closed source intelligence? Well, I think the answer to that question depends upon what you're seeking to know and for what purpose. Our intelligence community serves our senior leaders, the White House, the Pentagon, State Department, Department of Energy, military commands in the field. Our job is, you know, intense and capabilities and predictions, contextualizing events as they develop. And of course, in that mix is empirical evidence that you have, logical thinking about over having watched North Korea for seven decades now of of armistice, patterns of behavior, parameters of action. When are we in an area where we're, we're in a rhetorical campaign? When are we risking some type of kinetic lethal action? When are we actually heading down the road to war? We've been looking at North Korea for seven decades, so we've got some very good intuition. Mm-hmm. And when you break beyond what any biases that you would have about what you think the right thing would do and, and begin to understand North Korea's thinking based upon its behavior and rhetoric over the years, I think we're, I, I call North Korea strategically understandable, or ta- although tactically unpredictable. 
and and a lot of this understandable oh, but hectically unpredictable interesting now i'm just repeating the phrase that i hadn't heard oh, yeah. that before yeah so strategically understandable and, and you know if i look at north korea you know kind of a taxonomy of four areas of interest right what is their strategic narrative what can mm -hmm. we see in that strategic narrative about what kim jong-un wants what the kim regime wants of that system today and going forward how it perceives itself what its priorities are and to a large large extent that that is captured in their their day-to-day kind of battle rhythm, you know, amplified in major reports or speeches like New Year's speeches or party plenum readouts. So we, we get a lot of insight, particular mm -hmm. if you look at just the past several years, it's going back to the fifth party plenum of the seventh party Congress proclaiming the head-on breakthrough offensive in January of 2019, the, the, the eighth party Congress, and then speeches in and around there that Kim Jong-un Kim Jong has made we get a and if you compare them and, and look at them over time there's a continuity in there and so that strategic that narrative is is largely understandable there's strategic goals that come out of it therefore such strategic goals such as securing the wmd capability trying to establish dominance over south korea etc those are are pretty discernible too out of that that narrative now then when you get into the third area of tactics this is where you have the elements of surprise you know i came up with this taxonomy back in 2012 when i had to kind of personally own the dilemma of a leap day mm. understanding that was negotiated over the course of several months new york geneva finally beijing and then within two weeks of us announcing it on february 29th the north broke out of it so the question that I was getting is, why would North Korea, and this is early in the Kim Jong-un era, so, mm. right, this is not but uh, two months into the Kim Jong-un era, why yeah. did Kim agree to a deal and then break it? And so the construct allows for these tactics, both entering the agreement and breaking out of it, both supporting these strategic goals. And so, so diplomacy, when you begin to look at diplomacy as having as its objective advancing the north nuclear program then you understand why diplomacy never works in advancing usdprk relations or advancing inter-korea relations because the inter-korea relations rapprochement periods 91 to 92 2000 to 2002 ish you know 2018 are all designed to buy time for the program to to mitigate pressure and and to draw and to try to drive a wedge in the usrk relationship so these tactics you know, when is the next Chunanam sinking like provocation? When is the next threat to blow up leaflet balloons? Those will all come out, but those tactics all support the strategic objectives. Mm. The tactics, the, and the key to the tactics is discerning what is more of what we've seen over seven decades. And therefore, easily, it may be not always easily, but certainly de escalatable. So you know, we're not heading down some type of unintended escalation spiral that you're in an area that you're relatively familiar with, you know, like reestablishing the guard post, right? Over the last yeah. 48 hours, those guard posts were there for six decades. Mm -hmm. They were gone for a couple of years and now they're back. Right. These are not major strategic developments, mm. although they are reflections of a current state of uh, escalated tensions. And finally, the fourth area is, is people and processes. And I hate to say this, but, you know, as a career analyst who who loved tracking, you know, who's up and who's down, who's this mm. guy in this picture, who's this guy in that picture, at the most senior levels of government, you can imagine that those don't really matter. 
I remember, you know, even when when Kim Jong when uh, Chang Sung Tech was executed, yeah. you know, I said to myself, at the end of it, it's interesting, but it's not going to be, have any major impact on policy, and it didn't. So those areas are frustrating. Like I wish we knew the view towards U.S. nuclear deterrence of all the core commanders in North Korea. I mean, there's things that you wish you knew, but at the yeah. end of the day, I used to describe North Korea as a puzzle. Mm -hmm. for which we have most of the pieces to see the picture. Yeah, We don't like the picture, so we curse the missing pieces. <laughs> Coming back to the, the question of intel, why and how, and I think that with your unique work experience, you'll be able to answer this more than anybody else, why and how does some intel become classified and so therefore not open to public scrutiny? <laughs> That's a good question. And, you know, one of the things that I count as a small minor accomplishment uh, prior to my retirement was in accordance with the Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, direction to try to get more, to introduce more transparency along the lines mm. of what you're hinting at. You know, we released the key findings of the National Intelligence Estimate on North Korea nuclear scenarios 2030 and outward. And I know many, if you have, if you have, you have an audience in the audience, have not seen that, you should uh, go take a look at it. It's easily searchable through DNI, NIE, Korea. And of course, you know, I mean, there's a there's sometimes policy sensitivities, but the thought is that the American people would, would benefit from understanding the, the intelligence assessments that are informing policy decision-making. And I think under this administration, or the Biden administration, you know, the, the whole team from uh, you know Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan to Avril Haines have been committed to having the intelligence out there to enable the diplomacy to bring transparency to the table, and also you know in particular at a time when you know the Security Council has become so difficult to work in with with our Russian and uh, Chinese partners in terms of responding to North Korea's provocations, winning the hearts on building the consensus, a diplomatic consensus among non-security member security non-permanent security council members non-security council members and just internationally there's a great benefit to having the information that we know about north korea its illicit activities its nuclear program its missile program you know more available to the public so there obviously is that that desire on the other hand this intelligence provides decision advantage to policymakers and war fighters and the integrity of the intelligence is greatly enhanced by protecting sources and methods. It's, it's sometimes good that North Korea doesn't know everything we know about what we know about North Korea, right? There's sometimes you, you would want North Korea to know, we know your programs, we know where they are, but you know it's, it's, it's complicated. But the, the goal primarily in keeping the secret is again to protect these sources and methods that a lot of taxpayer money and a lot of effort of intelligence officers across agencies, across intelligence discipline have, have invested in. So it's, it's, it's a very prudent way to protect that investment. How long does something that is uh, classified generally remain classified? Is there uh, like a, a set period, like 40 years or something? Yeah, there's there's various timelines along which declassifications are made. I'm not an expert in it, but I know you know, usually we're talking at the 25-year mark, now, if you look at under this transparency initiative of, of DNI Haynes, the uh, NIEs and some of the other uh, national intelligence estimates and some of the other products are, are, are much more uh, recent. Uh, the, the net, our NIE itself, the one on, on North Korea, uh, was released early in 2023, and it was only a few months afterward that we were able to kind of roll this thing out 
in an event that uh, CSIS hosted at the time. Ah. Do you think there's a tendency towards overclassification within the intelligence community? I think, I mean, that that's always a concern, right? Mm. And, and so part of the role of the intelligence officer is always trained on, on how to appropriately classify material and a lot of emphasis on not overclassifying uh, material. You want the intelligence to be used. Right. Yeah. And overly classified compartmental intelligence is is not as useful as something that you know is obviously right. getting to a wider readership. So it's a it's a it's a well known problem over the years, and there's always a a healthy tension on need to share, need to need to uh, protect, need to know. And so yeah, I mean it's something that's a, a constant point of interest for the intelligence community's leadership to make sure that that doesn't happen. Now, you've already mentioned the National Intelligence Estimate on North Korea and how quickly the, the most recent one came out. But on, on just other uh, more general and classified and compartmentalized information, where should historians and journalists look for newly declassified documents to better understand DPRK? Is there some sort of clearinghouse that sends this stuff out every 25 years? That's a good question on, on how those are made available. I, I don't know. I So... In terms of the products under the NIE initiative, the transparency initiative, there is a, a website where uh, under the DNI where these these documents are available to the public. I see that the North Korea scenarios for leveraging nuclear weapons can be found at www.dni.gov slash documents slash assessments. So you can you can navigate your way around there. And I think there's uh, probably uh, other more uh, wider net tools that probably researchers on the outside are much more familiar with than I have been on the inside. Sure. Moving on to the, the risks and pitfalls of gathering intel on a, on a closed system like the DPRK, or, or as you uh, the analogy you had earlier, a, a puzzle with some missing pieces. To what extent can bad actors and fantasists successfully peddle false information to the intelligence community. And I'm thinking of the case of the Iraq case of Ahmed Chalabi with his fake intel on Iraq before the 2003 invasion. Have there been uh, defectors from North Korea who have come out and say they know the right people who can bring about change in that country only for it to be completely fantasy? And I'm thinking, for example, of the, the unprovable evidence of chemical weapons being tested on human prisoners in 2003 4 that's a great question. And this is something that on this issue I've worried about for years. And uh, there's a long history of great propaganda efforts, whether it's to demonize the North or make them mm -hmm. appear less demonized than they are. There's, you know, now you've introduced the, the internet has proliferated the number of people that can do it, you know, particularly, and, and I understand, you know, the dynamics of, of uh, defectors and wanting to get their stories out there. And of course, those who would doubt those stories, you know, this is just like, you know, basic footnoting and sources 101 for any, you know, college student, you've got to take a hard look at what the evidence is, how consistent it is with other established, you know, maybe validated source streams, how, how would you explain differences, etc. And then the kind of the more wild accusations, kind of how much you want to build your case upon one-off claim of X, right? And so, yeah. you know, there's a lot of due diligence done. A lot of work is done to, to, to compare. And what you have when you're on in the intelligence community, of course, you've got access to the classified information. 
It can provide greater insight. It can provide clarity. It can refute it. But I think we're all essentially in the, in the same business on, when we're looking at North Korea, where a healthy degree of skepticism is, is always helpful. Generally speaking, how reliable have you found the human intelligence gathered by interviewing people who've escaped from North Korea, particularly if you know more than one person says X, for example? Well, you know, so you can imagine a range of topics that a defector or defectors would credibly have. What's the traffic in Hamhung like? What's mm. <laughs> what are the relations between you know, military and civilians at the local level? The types of things that are important towards a, a fundamental understanding of North Korea that you know they're not ask, they're not answering the questions where are all the missiles hidden or where are all the nuclear warheads stored. But they're an important piece of that global understanding of, of North Korean politics, economics, society, even military. But but I it's uh, difficult on the when it gets into military or leadership, it's a lot harder to have confidence. And you know, in that fourfold you know taxonomy I mentioned earlier about you know the narrative identity, strategic goals, tactics, people, and processes. At the end of the day. The people and processes are are much less important than you would think. I was going to say even something more kind of high profile, like you know when Kim Jong Chul started showing up as the North's lead negotiator and not Chase Sun Hee. Right. You know, there was a lot of talk back and forth. It's, does this represent you know a triumph of some type of interagency debate in North Korea mm -hmm. that Kim Jong Chul emerged victorious? No, I mean you know it's like a a football coach, when do you send in the punter? When do you send in the right. kicker? It's not a debate between the punting and kick and, and field goal teams. Uh, I, I hate a, an American football analogy, but you, you get my point. Yeah. Wondering about the, the loss to institutional memory with people constantly rotating in and out of positions and agencies. Is that a uh, big picture you know, danger to the understanding of North Korea? Or are there, are there more than a small handful of people who have your kind of longevity, for example? I think there are, and and I think you know if nothing else, they're they're much uh, much smarter and much more qualified, and and bringing enthusiasm to this issue, and and that that's crucial and key. You always want new eyes on this issue. The other thing we benefit from, of course, is our close alliance with the Republic of Korea, and of course, mm. South Koreans always provide a good uh, context in which to understand North Korea, and so I have confidence in the next generation of analysts. I know that it doesn't come easy. And you need to invest in the future. And there's competition. Other issues will come up and other issues will fade. But I think the cadre that we have now between the various intelligence agencies and certainly at State Department and other relevant organizations, the challenges we faced in 1990, 91, the early days of the Greed Framework, is we just never had had sustained contacts with North Korea. And North mm. Korea really was a black hole. That's why we had such an emphasis on open source analysis, media analysis, looking at right. Kim Il-sung's speeches and the like, because we had no other types of uh, interactions with the North Korea. It's very different now. Mm. It's, it's not as much of a black hole. I think a lot of the, the black hole concerns about North Korea, the, we, you know, because people who want to see a breakthrough in USDPRK relations, People who want to see advancements in diplomacy, it's not they live in denial, but it's just so frustrating. It must be, there must be something we don't understand. There must be something we haven't tried that only if we understood it, 
if yeah. only if we tried it, then then we could have a breakthrough. And uh, it's just not the case right now. In addition to my strategically understandable, tactically unpredictable, tactically surprising, is you know my assertion that we have a sufficient understanding of North Korea for good policy. I'm wondering who replaced you at your uh, in your last role and how good their Korean uh, language proficiency is. Well, the team there, it's a diverse team, and uh, they bring a variety of uh, experiences, various uh, mission areas, WMD, politics, economics, and some languages. It's pretty solid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's more than enough. You know, we we have a lot of linguists across the community doing a lot of variety of jobs, and so... I'm not concerned with the, the quality of the, the, the linguists on, on the Korea issue. That's one of the areas we've been blessed with, I think. Are there any things that you think get overlooked or forgotten too easily in analyzing and trying to understand North Korea? I, I think the degree to which the livelihood of the North Korean people in terms of uh, economic materialistic prosperity, the low priority that's placed on that by the leadership in making decisions regarding its policies, policies on nuclear weapons and missiles that have, that continue to lead to the, the regime's isol- country's isolation, the, the impoverishment of the people, the inability of the regime to re- re-stimulate, revive its economy. These are all the results of, of decisions made because Better relations with the United States and better relations with with South Korea are not top strategic priorities of the regime. It seems like that's so counterintuitive that 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 a leadership mm. would certainly be looking for ways to you know improve its people's livelihood, make the nation stronger. Surely they must know that nuclear weapons aren't going to feed the people. Actually, the, their worldview is is exactly the opposite, and and. About a week before uh, the inauguration of Barack Obama, there were two foreign ministry statements that came out at the time. And, you know, basically the message, bottom line message was our nuclear weapons are not up for sale. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are willing to take the economic hardships. If we have to choose between nuclear weapons and better relations with the United States, we will choose the former. We, we have lived without better relations with the United States. We cannot live without nuclear weapons. There's a rare kind of flash of just really direct, open honesty. That didn't stop, by the way, the the Obama administration from seeking engagement with North Korea. That engagement uh-huh. was delayed, of course, by the sinking of the Chonan and the shelling of the Yumpyong Island. You know, but the North had already made it clear that these weapons weren't for sale and that these were indispensable to the country's identity and survival. And understanding that. And, you know, being on the alert for North Korea messaging that continues to put the blame on the U.S. and U.S. hostile policy and the U.S. unwillingness to negotiate, that these are not the current obstacles in in carving out a path to the future. North Korea's strong adherence to the desire to have nuclear weapons is is the biggest obstacle. Sid, have you ever been in a situation where a policy on, on North Korea was being made and you felt that you had something contribute due to your uh, expertise, but were not listened to, or or your assessment was downplayed or even dismissed by the policymakers. So, the, I mean, the challenge of any really really focused expert, particularly somebody who's focused on on an issue like North Korea, is is understanding that decisions of U.S. foreign policy are made by individuals, you know, in, in positions of responsibility, like 
the secretary level, what we call the principal level, the deputy level, who on any given day are looking at, yes, North Korea, Israel, Ukraine, domestic issues, economic issues. And so that there is a degree to which North Korean policy is made within the context of certain foreign policy principles or guidelines or, or interests. And so at any given time, there may be an area where you think, why, why don't we do this on North Korea? And, and there's other reasons why we don't do it. And that's kind of a humbling experience. It's a value of doing a rotation, by the way, working yeah. on the National Security Council, because you get to see that firsthand. Mm. But I've never had an, a situation in which that has taken place. I, I can say that we have engaged with North Korea at times when everybody's assessment of the likelihood of survival was pretty low. But that's more a testimony to the U.S. commitment to seeking a negotiated settlement to this issue than it is naivete. Mm -hmm. There has not been an instance where we met with North Korea without a, you know, it, the agreed framework was new and we were testing new things. And so the agreed framework was a goodwilled, a good intent to test North Korea, a test that by the time they start to look towards uranium enrichment as a covert path to fissile material outside of the plutonium program, the North was already showing its, its disinterest in sustained denuclearization. When we engaged at the six-party talks, we engaged with all the cumulative experience and, and, and understanding of North Korea gained through that agreed framework era the Obama administration came in, built upon that experience that was gained through the six-party talks. And, and the Trump team came in and they built upon the experience that was the Obama team had. So, and, and it's certainly now the current team. We've learned a lot about North Korea over the years. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we go in, we, we go in with some pretty good cards. A lack of understanding of North Korea has never been a, a contributor mm -hmm. to the failure of any round of talks. Last question. We've been here now in a situation where there hasn't been any talks really since n nothing substantive since Hanoi failed and really nothing uh, since the, the mini meeting at the, the military zone. So what do you imagine the next move will be and, and, and which side will make it? I think Pyongyang's best interests now are probably going to be that Kim Jong-un probably sees some type of coercive action towards South Korea as beneficial to his longer-term strategy. I do, I do believe one of the strategic goals in North Korea is firmly establishing dominance on the peninsula to enable coercive diplomacy. And this is essentially what our national intelligence estimate says, right? That this type of coercive diplomacy over time, particularly if cooperation with Russia helps Kim either in the WMD realm or even in, in reconstituting some weaknesses with his conventional forces, that it would make sense for Kim to inflict some type of political punishment or pain on the, the UN administration for its North Korea policy and its close cooperation with the United States on North Korea policy. Would that be something that involves kinetic action, like a repeat of the sinking of the Chonan or the shelling of Yonpyongdo? Are we we do in, include that as a possibility within the NIE. You know, as mm -hmm. I as I look, if you look at the last seven decades. Library of Congress, Congressional Research Service puts out put out in the past great compilations, and I'm sure your team probably has done something similar, of the history of North Korea kinetic uh, lethal provocations going back to the armistice. 
And you can see from the 50s, 60s, 70s, and then from the 80s onward, it diminishes in frequency and intensity and risk taking. And that, you know, since the China and I'm thinking, you know, shelling, we have the August 2015 landmine incident, but we've got a, a Kim Jong-un approach that seems to support his strategic diplomatic objective of gaining acceptance as a nuclear power, that he sees responsible restrained behavior as contributing to his argument he should be accepted as a responsible nuclear power. So it has not been in his interest, certainly during the Moon administration, and even during the Yoon administration, a lot of rhetoric, but mm -hmm. no action so far. I think some of this is contributable, is attributable to the Yoon uh, administration's team's great work on provocation, deterrence. And Kim knows that this is not 2010, that he you know, could not get away with what took place back then. But it is nevertheless you know, driving up tension on the peninsula. I, I imagine as kind of confident as I am that the impact of, of the reversal of the CMA, the Comprehensive Military Agreement, will not have much impact on the ground. It does provide an opportunity for Kim to raise tensions and manipulate events in the coming weeks in a way that makes it look like South Korea's, what I believe to be justifiable, resumption of surveillance and reconnaissance as previously prohibited by the CMA or prescribed by the CMA, that North mm. Korea will use this to kind of portray some type of tit-for-tat escalating tension, particularly after we get into the new year and we begin to head towards the exercise season. We'll, we'll certainly be keeping an eye on a very close watch on that here uh, at NK News. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today, Sid, but we've, we've certainly got a lot out of you today. I'm very grateful once again for your time in coming on the NK News podcast. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. I look forward to uh, the situation presents itself to do it again. Thanks so much, Jack. I appreciate it. Thank you. And people can uh, can keep in touch with your uh, your thoughts by uh, following you on Twitter at uh, Sid Seiler. Uh, is there a memoir coming out at some point? Oh, no, no, no. I, I, I don't have the energy for that, but uh, <laughs> who knows? Maybe. Not, not for now. Not for now. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today. And uh, yeah, stay well. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Ever feel overwhelmed with the complexity of trying to understand what's going on with North Korea? Don't fret. NK Pro is here to help. Built on the strong reputation of NK News, NK Pro combines decades of experience with cutting-edge technology to offer the best in North Korea-related information. Here's the deal. You get daily analysis and exclusive news, along with amazing research tools that let you tap into a vast range of open-source North Korean information, such as state media search and data extraction, real-time ship and aircraft movement tracking, and A to Z directories of people, companies, and organizations inside and outside the company. Yes, you heard that right. NK Pro is perfect for those in policy, business, and research who need quality, reliable, and timely insights. It's not just about staying informed, it's about understanding the key signals that can change the course of the future. So why wait? Dive deep into the realm of North Korea with NK Pro and navigate the landscape like a pro. After all, knowledge is power. Interested? Visit nknews.org professionals to claim your free 30-day trial of NK Pro. Once again, that's nknews.org professionals.
Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of our podcast episode for today. Our thanks go to Brian Betts and Alana Hill for facilitating this episode and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, and fixes the audio levels. Thank you, and listen again next time. (laughs) 